0: are listening to the latest edition of the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. Today is May 23rd, 2020, and I'm your host, Andrew Robinson. Today, I'm joined by Brett Lowry, Managing Director of Equity Capital Markets at Academy Securities. From our Geopolitical Intelligence Group, we have Major General James spider Marks, Lieutenant General Robert Walsh, and Major General Mastin Robinson. The topic of today's podcast is the significant drop in oil prices and demand. Amid the COVID-19 pandemic, challenges in the oil market have reached a level not seen in recent decades. It is apparent that this environment will persist for the foreseeable future. But how does that impact the global risk landscape? Our experts weigh in on several locations around the world where these changes in the oil market can significantly alter relationships between nations and the way in which the United States engages the world. Brett is going to lead the questions, so I'll hand it over to him. What we
1: like to do um, is basically set the table for potentially longer term low oil prices and how that is going to affect the perspective of the United States towards different regions of the world um, and different priorities uh, the United States has set uh, for dealing with certain regions of the world as well. Uh, we'll go around uh, the table with, uh, with our generals to give different perspectives and different views on uh, the different regions of the world the United States has been involved in, you know, for the last several decades. But the specter of low oil prices for a longer amount of time um, obviously brings to bear some questions around where is this going to take the U.S. posture, geopolitical view, et cetera, towards a lot of these nations. I'll pass over General Marks to give a little bit of perspective on how we got here. Um, obviously COVID uh, and the oil price war uh, driving oil prices down to record lows and effectively some initial thoughts on how that might change the U.S. perspective uh, towards the Middle East and other regions of the world as well.
2: Brett, thanks very, very much. And um, uh, what I'd really like to start off with is a, is a word of thanks certainly to, to you and Andy for your incredible service to nation. So thank you very much. And also it's, it's always a great honor to be with Generals Walsh and Robeson. So Thanks very much, gents, um, for all that you do and, and have done. In response to your question, I think it's important that we keep in mind that, you know, we're, we're viewing the world now through this filter of the coronavirus and the pandemic that it unleashed. And I would say as we kind of emerge through these different phases of how we've accommodated and um, responded to the crisis and how we're going to try to reimagine our futures, you can't get away from the fact that we are... I don't think ever going to return anything that looks like normal, um, and I don't think we're going to be into any, what I, what many have called a post-COVID environment. I think what we're going to be in is a thing called a COVID-influenced environment in perpetuity. I mean, as we go forward, everything we do will be and has been affected by this pandemic. It's going to alter the way we think, the way we work, the way we migrate, the way we eat, the way we Conduct human interaction, and most importantly, the politics among nations will be fundamentally changed as well. So, in light of that, I think the most important thing that we need to think about going forward is what will our the United States relationship be with China, uh, moving forward? And we we essentially have two choices to try to keep it simple. One is we could be very vitriolic. We could be rapacious. We could look at the Chinese and say you created this pandemic, you are responsible um, for assisting the world as we try to emerge from it. And uh, frankly, that is what seems to be the priority moving forward as a course of action. Or we could choose to say, look, of course you created this pandemic. We know that, but China, you're not going anywhere. You're the world's largest population. You have an amazing economy. You have influence that's global. You are emerging and are becoming a superpower that no one ever really thought would occur. Yet you had this very long march over the course of the last 70 years that put you in this position. We the market that's the you know, the Western and the the open market needs to deal with you. So I would suggest that we cannot be rapacious. We have to embrace China. We have to work together to try to figure out what this new world is going to look like, and oil prices will drive a lot of that. Clearly, demand is down, prices down. What will the oil market look like moving forward? But I can guarantee you one thing is China's demand, China's consumption, which is number three in the world right now behind the United States and the EU. But China's consumption down now will Again, that engine is going to continue, will start to roar again. How is that going to affect our relationship going forward? So, anything we do moving forward in this COVID influenced environment has to be, has to accommodate what China looks like and what China wants to try to do and what their strategy is, which is clearly stated by the CCP, which is they want to be the sole superpower. They've been a predator, they're a competitor, and we've got to figure out and acknowledge that, but we've got to figure out how we can work together in order to try to solve these problems going forward without giving up our national security imperatives.
1: Do you think that with lower oil prices, obviously, China's made a lot of investments overseas uh, into South America, into Africa. Obviously, they've got a massive economy um, that needs oil. Uh, and obviously, low oil prices you know, will start to change how they obviously look at their P&Ls on some of these projects. Um, do you think that's going to change any of their overseas investment into some regions, one, to build influence, uh, but two, also to make investments in the, obviously, in the natural resources they need to continue to grow. General Walsh.
3: You know, just, it's hard to view this, but my guess would be that China will take advantage. I mean, coming out of this uh, COVID environment, how slowly or quickly we come out, um, I, I think many would look at the world as a chessboard. And the large players like China, Russia, and the U.S. are playing their pieces right now and trying to figure out what that is going to look like, how quickly we come out of this. But if you look at what China's been doing, is, is increasing their global influence around the world, especially in places like Africa and um, uh, South America, Eastern Europe, places like that, that uh, uh, would like to get um, Chinese cash development uh, infrastructure brought in those are the places that are going to be the, uh, that are most susceptible, and in those cases, a lot of these oil-producing countries rely so much on oil, they're they're susceptible to Chinese influence even more. So when the oil prices drop, these countries are really going down uh, economically. So the opportunity for China to come in, uh, bail them out, put them more in debt, provide more cash to them. And, uh, and them to leverage Chinese investment in there, I see as an opportunity for China to continue to increase their Belt and Road initiative.
1: Shifting gears a little bit over to the Middle East, General Robson, with the perspective of, obviously, you know, this is having an impact on almost every nation in the region. With Saudi Arabia in particular, you know, looking at the Vision 2030 plan and how the Saudis are trying to evolve their economy to be less dependent on oil. Obviously, their break-even Price uh, is, you know, one of the lowest globally, if not the lowest. Uh, But how does this affect their broader, you know, long-term 2030 and beyond plan to start to evolve away from oil in a region of the world that has been dependent on that for, you know, the better part of the last century? Uh, I think it reinforces the requirement to do that. I mean, if you look at just this week, uh,
4: OPEC, which when you think OPEC, you're talking Saudi, I mean, they've, they've published that on I think it's Wednesday or Thursday in their monthly oil report that you know, almost two and a half million barrels a day uh, is the forecast for the reduction in uh, requirement, demand, uh, for this year, which drops us to over nine million barrels a day, lower than demand was in 2019. So yes, oil prices have are dropped. That's going to change their economic uh, view, but also demand has dropped. And I don't really see demand going back up, uh, you know, anytime soon, uh, given that everyone is, is more internally looking. So so I definitely think that it's complicated for them. I think the requirement is, is doubled down on they're going to be a, have a really hard time doing this uh, and carrying their population with them. Because the population is, is absolutely used to a national socialistic type Uh, application where all revenues uh, in essence feed the masses and uh, and provide their income uh, for the most part. And and that's going to be tough for them to do. So their challenge is going to be how do they maintain their economic viability, simultaneously with maintaining their populist unity, which is always, you know, an issue within the Middle East. What they say publicly, what they say privately, frequently uh, are not the same. And they're going to be faced with that here too. And I would add one thing to what uh, Joe Walsh said a minute ago, and that is that uh, I, I agree 100% with what he said, but I also think Africa and South America more than anybody else is is absolutely going to be without personal protection type stuff to fight the this, this pandemic. And China has had great difficulty getting the stuff that they're producing into the United States because of the, uh, the the FDA certification and everyone has now become quite leery of, of what is coming out of China to be used. But it'll be, they'll turn that faucet on to, uh, to Africa and in addition to the debt that Joe Loss talked about. They'll also be giving goodness by saying, here, we can provide...
1: Protective uh, PPE-type stuff we use to facilitate your ability to take care of your people. General Walsh, uh, with respect to Iran and Iraq, um, obviously Iran uh, beaten badly uh, by COVID, uh, still reeling, uh, still trying to recover, and obviously sanctions uh, on the country and the the goal of, of the administration to drive Iranian oil exports to zero. How will this potentially affect their longer term plans, not only in their weapons development, um, but also their posture towards their neighbors, including Iraq, um, who obviously has a new prime minister um, who has a lot on his plate? How do you think that low oil prices are going to affect Iran and Iraq in the near to medium term?
3: Yeah, thanks, Brett, for the question. Um, You know, I think if you look at Iran, they have been crippled so much by sanctions that they're already down very low as far as their uh, oil production and their economy already is crippled. So how much lower this will cause them to go down? It's going to have an effect, um, but probably not as catastrophic as we would think because they've been withstanding the sanctions pretty well. In fact, we just saw that they launched their first military satellite into space. So in some ways they're taking advantage of the current situation. Uh, They're pretty low already as far as where the economy is towards the, the bottom. So it'll be interesting to see how where this goes and how they react. I think in a lot of cases, they're like other countries around the, uh, the world, world that are adversaries to the U.S., and they'll try to take advantage of this as, as however they can. From the Iraqi standpoint, you know, their economy is really already at the brink of catastrophe because it's been relied on by oil so much. Um, so they're going to be a lot at risk because as they're trying to develop their economy, and grow it through a lot of their oil production. I think 90% of their government revenue comes in through oil. Uh, but at the same time, uh, the COVID-19 has hurt Iraq probably the least of just about uh, any country in the Middle East and, and across the globe. So their economy's been fairly open. They, their, um, the COVID uh, infection rate and death rate has been very low. So the economy has a lot to do with continuing to operate close to normal Outside of the oil piece, so it'll be uh, it'll be interesting to see how Iraq does. Uh, I think they're not going to be able to grow their military and weapons with the lack of oil revenue and they're going to need the help of outside players and and I think that'll be the longer term competition uh, with the new Iraqi government. Will it be you know the the u s influence in there or will it be more the Iranian influence
2: if I can follow up on what general Walsh just said I, I think what we're what we're seeing is in this current environment, this COVID-influenced environment is, you're going to see nations um, accept an increasing level of risk in terms of their relationships with others as they try to achieve their strategic goals. And and what I'm trying to say is, um, in some nations, there will be an acceptance of a higher level of risk because their goals will cause both the United States and our partners and allies to accommodate these changes and be more mindful of how these stresses are affecting our population. Um, well, I, I guess the clearer way to say that is the United States has ingested into its economy trillions and trillions of dollars in order to try to maintain the standard of living that we had achieved over the course of years. And so we are accepting some suffering and some risk economically so that our population can survive and exist at this level that we had, you know, that our economy and our democracy has uh, allowed to flourish. In other parts of the world, that's not the case. Um, you, look at, you look at Iran, they will be willing to accept more risk and more pain. It's kind of a strategic, maybe in the, in the case of this pandemic, a biological rope-a-dope where they know they're going to achieve some pain. They know they're going to have to fight through this. But they will win, in air quotes here, they will win because we suffer. And I think that's what you're going to see, is that nations will be willing to accept a higher level of pain if they know that the pain that we're going through will be more unacceptable to us than it is to them. And I think that's going to direct across the board, in all economic verticals, decisions that are gonna be made and how nations try to achieve their objectives. I'm completely on board with General Walsh. The Iranian leadership will continue down its path to achieve a nuclear capability, to achieve oil, greater oil, some degree of oil independence, to create its missile capabilities continue to be a threat in the region, which drives us to the necessity the absolute practical necessity to maintain a very solid relationship with the counterbalance, which is the Saudis in that part of the
3: world.
1: Turning a quick eye onto our relationship with Israel, obviously one of our staunchest if not the best ally we have in the region. Thinking about the longer term here, um, obviously we will never turn our back um, on Israel, but thinking about what the Middle East looks like 20 years from now, as the environment changes, As oil potentially stays lower. Um, What will be our posture uh, in the region and our relationship with Israel? Do we expect any changes there um, in how we obviously, one, support them, but two, how other nations might view that part of the world as well? General Robeson. I don't see how the
4: the relationship with everybody doesn't change. I think all, uh, as we pull more inward, and I thought the way uh, Joe Marks. we become uh, really more determined to maintain a level that is probably economically um, impossible to do, Um, I I mean, I think it's going to force us into reassessing our relationship with about everybody, which I think does put things somewhat uh, in a, not necessarily, well, it does put it more risk, but it it more specifically, it changes the metric. It changes uh, how we view I think our international relations and how we struggle with uh, the the dichotomy between um, working closely with historical partners and trying to inwardly uh, economically afford to maintain what Joe Marx was describing, uh, which I think is spot on. So I don't think we'll abandon Israel, but I definitely think uh, it will it will impact and it will adapt and adjust. And I think uh, as a nation,
1: we're moving, we've been moving that way slowly over the last two decades anyway. It's just, this is liable to, to, cause it to take a jump and it's uh, in that direction. Um, and actually, General Robson, going to stick with you for this next one um, with respect to North Africa. Um, obviously, we've put out some pieces on Libya um, and the civil war that has obviously been tearing the country apart uh, for the better part of the last decade. Um, significant oil and gas reserves off the coast of Libya, uh, Turkey has been uh, a keen supporter of the gNA in this current environment and in the foreseeable future. Uh, obviously Turkey wants to see at the table. do you see Turkey potentially changing their tact here uh, you know with a potentially lower uh, price environment uh, going forward no i
4: don 't um, i think I, I think Libya just being status quo with the exception of NATO's reaction if there's an increase in refugees that start moving across the Mediterranean. I think that's the biggest threat to NATO, and that would most spur NATO to, to take a more aggressive approach to it. I think it's very likely the Libyan uh, scenario will, will stay at status quo with the unfortunateness of uh, UAE, you know, trying to, to, to work one side of the equation and basically in opposition against. Uh, their counterparts in Qatar and Europe and Turkey and the UN. But it, it does put, put Russia and the UAE in a—not in, in a partnership, but on the same side of the fence. And it's unique in that it, it also sort of pits Russia against Turkey. But I I don't see a resolution in in Libya on the short term. I, I think this continues to be a slugfest you know, for the near future anyway.
2: If I can add something to uh, General Robeson's comment, you know, when you look at the consumption, the oil consumption rates, the three largest consumers, um, the, the United States being number one, the EU is number two at a little over 15 million barrels a day. With an increase, um, you know, kind of a outflow from the Middle East and North Africa of refugees, and the, the attendant requirement to accom- accommodate, integrate, insinuate, care for, um, that just allows for this increase, which will be inevitable. It's anybody's speculation to what it's going to look like. But let's say it goes from 15 million a day in excess. Let's go. It increases by a third just because of the demand of the movement and the caring for and the um, immediate Human resources necessary and infrastructure necessary to accommodate this outflowing. You know, the the number one export from the Mideast right now is its people um, because of the incredible instability that exists there, with, as we've indicated, very little, very little optimism to assume that it's going to change, that it's going to turn the corner and be something better than what it is right now. So that demand is where it is now, and it's going to increase, you look at oil and you understand its incredible influence over all decisions that affect the EU and the EU's relationship, therefore, with Russia. When you look at the number of pipelines, you know there are 12 pipelines that come from Russia through both the Baltics and Ukraine into the EU. And with the development and the installation, over two-thirds of it completed, of Nord Stream 2 from Russia all the way to northern Germany, um, the EU is in a position, they look at it from a very practical perspective and say, I think we can handle it. Russia sees it clearly, not from an economic perspective, albeit a solid one, they see it as a political perspective. It's an opportunity for them to continue to drive a wedge between the EU and the United States. So oil has an impact not only from the MENA, but also from Russia as it affects EU. And it needs to be addressed from the perspective of the U.S. relationship to EU right now. That remains, that's the thing that's in the balance for me.
1: Yes, sir. And I think just to follow up on that point as we, as we stay on Russia, what do we think that this does not only one to their economy in the longer term, obviously, they were prepared, um, you know, with a $500 billion reserve to potentially, you know, conduct the standoff with Saudi Arabia. Uh, but obviously, COVID came along um, and changed plans dramatically for both of the, both of the nations. But with Russia's over overseas engagements, their ability uh, to generate revenue from obviously from oil production and sales do we see a longer-term impact for Putin here, um, or do we believe that Putin is obviously going to be the strong man that will you know, last uh, you know, in perpetuity, um, and maybe this won't affect some of his overseas engagements? Uh, General Marks, what, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Boy, I have to, uh, it's, a, it's a great question, and um, I have to tell you, my view is that Putin has stability and staying power that should not surprise anybody. Irrespective of the pandemic, albeit I think it's inappropriate for me to even say that because that's we're way beyond the the irrelevance or pre, you know, COVID anti is irrelevant. Putin has got some amazing stickiness. He's gonna be around till 2036. There's no reason to believe that that's gonna change. But when you look at it, you know, Russia consumes about 4 million uh, barrels a day of oil, yet its reserves, places it at about eighth in the world with, you know, around 80 billion. So its economy, it is not, I would argue that, you know, Russia is not a superpower, because its economy cannot keep up with the engine that exists in China and the engine that exists in the EU and the United States. So Russia has its one opportunity to provide influence. And that's, through an it's really the application of its oil reserves it doesn't have a high demand in its own economy so it can afford to take some risk externally which it's doing with the Nord Stream 2 this is not going to necessarily be a big economic winner for them but it is a political one so its diplomatic efforts remained unchanged which means i think putin continues with his with his same behaviors and his efforts uh, across his own borders to be disruptive and to exercise Russian influence as broadly as he can.
1: Shifting shifting gears uh, down to Venezuela, uh, General Walsh obviously with um, with the indictment of Maduro, with additional U.S. forces into the into the region. You know with. Their economy spiraling and obviously decimated before COVID, but obviously their response and the impact that COVID is having on the Venezuelan and the broader South American economies um, is obviously having a huge effect. Recent news about Venezuela buying fuel from Iran and obviously paying for it in Venezuelan gold. Um, what do we think the the longer term view here uh, is for President Maduro? Um, obviously with the failed Silver corporate. Unlikely um, that Juan Guaido will be assuming the presidency anytime soon. Uh, He's been bolstered. But what do you think the longer-term impact is with lower oil prices uh, on Venezuela? And do we think of change of control, you know, could be in the cards one day?
3: Yeah, thanks for the question, Brett. You know, Venezuela has the largest oil reserves in the world. Uh, And the country at one time was doing very well with oil production. Um, But in the current state, you know, with uh, what's going on with the regime, the lack of leadership um, and the, the sanctions the U.S. You know has put on. It's put a lot of pressure on Maduro. In their country, I compare it in a lot of ways economically to where Iran is. is, is just, it's just at, it's at rock bottom. Um, they're predicting, you know, it's, it's so low right now that they're predicting that even though they get most of their oil production uh, for the economy, it's only going to go down about 15 percent. So, as General Marx said so well on Iran, that these kind of countries, these uh, regimes with uh, autocratic leaders like Maduro, they can hang in there for a long time. And uh, it's been seen that Maduro's stayed in there. He's uh, really with a a lot of pressure put on by the U.S. and over 60 countries across the globe to uh, change the regime towards Juan Guaido. You know, we've seen how this recent failed uh, coup attempt, he's used that to his advantage. Uh, and uh, gotten rid of some of the opposition force uh, leaders that, uh, that are in the country. So in the long term, I think he's just going to hunker down and withstand it. He'd, he's lost a little bit of support from Russia and China, um, but there's still support above him, and I think Russia will constantly do whatever it can to um, counter whatever the U.S. is doing. Uh, and from a military standpoint, you know we've got the uh, increased... Uh, naval and Coast Guard operations going on in the region to stop drug flow from venezuela for for economic reasons um, but i don 't think we 'd ever go to the point of uh, at least not what I could see today of any type of um, naval embargo to stop you know any shipments from Iran going in to um, into Venezuela. So at this point in time, I see it's kind of a stalemate. We're going to continue to keep the pressure on, just like we're doing in Iran. It's having effects, but no effects to the point where it's going to overthrow the regime, uh, at least from what I can see at this point in time.
1: Gotcha. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. I think we've, for the most part, gone around the world and touched on some of the key points, uh, but wanted to wrap up here with with any final points um, from our team on Anything that we've discussed today uh, before we sign off. General Robeson, any, any final thoughts, sir?
4: of these type things. And I think that that that's just going to widen through this uh, COVID pandemic uh, era. Uh, And I also agree 100% that that this isn't going to go away anytime soon. It probably does change the way we do business uh, going forward. I think the next big thing for the U.S. will be uh, the real estate business because large companies that build huge uh, industrial buildings are probably going to have a difficult time moving those buildings, off
3: those buildings, or filling
1: those buildings in the future. Yes, sir. Thank you for that. And, and finally, General Walsh, uh, and, and any final thoughts, sir?
3: Yeah, thanks again, Brett, for uh, pulling this together. This has been great. And, and I would kind of circle back to where we started. Uh, and it would start with, to me, with uh, finish with China. And as we go forward, um, our national security strategy, our national defense strategy is focused on... Uh, competing with China and Russia, and as you start to see, it's even becoming more and more focused on China due to China's growing economy and military. Uh, just on Wednesday, the White House put out a brand new China strategy, and if you take a look at that strategy, it, uh, it really is uh, gone far away from China being a strategic partner, and it's all about competition, and everything you're seeing coming out of the administration – uh, from during this COVID-19 and the rhetoric that's going on on uh, China-U.S. relations and where it's going from here, that document is very clear. We're here to compete and in some cases confront China as necessary. While the COVID-19 has been, been going on, it's very interesting to watch what the, the China's been doing both diplomatically and uh, militarily. As you look at their military in the East and uh, South China Seas, really all the way from Japan down to Malaysia. They've been increasing their operations, naval operations, across the region, kind of below the radar in that gray zone that they operate in, um, and gaining lots of influence. And they really want to come out of this as the dominant power in the region post-COVID-19. Uh, that's on the military side. On the diplomatic side, very interesting to watch what's going on in Hong Kong today. If you remember last year, they tried to uh, press the Hong Kong government to uh, execute a extradition policy that would extradite Hong Kongers to China for violations of um, national security region. That started all the protests, and that obviously failed. While COVID-19 is going on, again, below the radar— is the Chinese legislation is meeting this week to pass laws to crack down on protests that they're saying are because of national security reasons and to punish any outside subversion. What that means to Hong Kongers is no freedom of the press, no freedom of speech, no right to protest. So they really are starting to move away. Where they want to move away from is the one country, two systems uh, policy that they've agreed to. And in the end, it really will be start to road Hong Kong's independence and move more under complete control of uh, the Chinese government. And I think they're willing to put the financial center at risk. I don't think the, the government of China will care about that if they can bring China underneath their, or bring Hong Kong underneath their fold in the way they want. And I think a wake-up call should be going on, and it is, with Taiwan right now, and how this uh, legislation that's being enacted. How could affect Taiwan in the future? In any hopes for a one country, two uh, systems approach like they have in Hong Kong, that would be uh, potentially under over uh, for uh, Taiwan. Hey, hey Bob, can I? I mean, that was very well said. Thank you.
2: You really put a spotlight on what I what I think is our largest challenge. If I can just provide a an additional thought, you know, what General Walsh said about uh, the Chinese military in particular is that when you compare, if you if it's appropriate to compare the leadership of the CCP relative to the leadership of the Chinese military. I think it's, again, without trying to oversimplify this, I would suggest that the Chinese military has a stronger militancy than uh, against the United States than does the Chinese political leadership. That's a problem because that's how we've defined our engagement with the Chinese to date in terms of, its desires to be expansive in the South China Sea and in Asia writ large. This is really a challenge to our overall relationship with China is really all about spheres of influence. Those have been challenged and in many cases have been broken over the course of, frankly, a couple of decades. But they are now being normalized. That's the biggest challenge that we have going forward. Um, China is trying to rewrite what their current relationships look like in that part of the world. And they're concerned, obviously, as General Walsh pointed out, with the direction that Hong Kong is going and Taiwan as well, because China in many cases is being embarrassed by both. Taiwan has done a far better job in terms of its response to the COVID-19 challenge. And Hong Kong has made it clear that two, you know, one country, two systems, is not necessarily being what they signed up for in 1997. So incredibly good points by General Walsh.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much, gentlemen, for your contributions to this conversation. And thank you to our listeners for taking the time. Academy Securities has assembled an impressive group of recently retired admirals and generals with their fingers on the pulse of the global risk landscape for decades. These individuals can provide unique perspective and expert level opinions on events, and relationships around the world that have the capacity to impact the capital markets and global economy. If you'd like to engage our experts directly, please email us at info at academysecurities.com. Academy Securities is a service-disabled, veteran-owned investment bank with a social mission to mentor, hire, and train military veterans to develop careers in finance. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson. Again, we appreciate you taking the time to listen, and look forward to sharing again with you soon.